This episode is sponsored by Interactive Brokers. Did you know that Interactive Brokers clients earn up to 4.33% on their uninvested, instantly available cash balances? In fact, how much interest is your broker able to pay you? That's a question you should be asking yourself. Interactive Brokers' prudent and conservative risk management uniquely positions IBKR to pay you far higher interest. That's just one of the many reasons clients use Interactive Brokers to trade stocks and options, futures, currencies, bonds, funds, and more. Rates subject to change. Visit IBKR.com slash interest rates to learn more. The Disciplined Investor is all about you, your money, and the markets. Sit back and get ready for this edition of the Disciplined Investor Podcast. This episode of The Disciplined Investor is sponsored by Horowitz & Company. If you're looking for a portfolio manager, look no further. Horowitz & Company, from seed through harvest, cultivating financial success. Redirection change. Bets are for cuts later this year. Ending the quarter on a more positive note and nailing first place in the chili cook-off. And our guest today, Danielle DiMartino Booth from Quill Intelligence, author and a Fed insider. All this and much more on episode number 810 of the Disciplined Investor Podcast. April is upon us. Yeah, April 2023. I know what you're saying. I know what you're saying because we all say it every time. It's like, and after we say it, we feel stupid, right? Oh, time is passing so, so fast. I mean, fast. That, it seems like it's fast than usual. I don't know. It's April already. How did it get to be April already? I mean, just I turned around. It was New Year's Eve. Was, I just remember Thanksgiving right around the corner from us. It was back there. And in the summer, it just seemed to, wait a minute, and winter's almost over. Yeah, well, getting older. We're all getting older. The fact is that time seems to pass more quickly. And you know, that's one of the reasons why I spend this time with you trying to make sure and, and really push you sometimes to the limit on making sure that your personal financial situation is done, complete, planned, working, and doing what it needs to do to get you to where you need to go. And that's what is I find to be my responsibility. That's what I do every day with our clients, right? Is to make sure that they stay the course. In fact, this week, uh, my son, he called me in the morning. He says, Dad, what are you doing? I said, well, I'm going to the office. He said, what are you doing today? I said, well, I'm got to run a bunch of numbers for, for a lot of people to make sure everybody is on plan. He said, well, what do you do that for everybody? I said, yeah, I do it for you too, right? We do a lot of work for you. We do a lot of work for people you know as well. And it's all about making sure that we have a plan, we work the plan, we adjust the plan, and then we have a plan, and we work the plan, and we adjust the plan. Over and over and over again. Why? It's, you know, practice makes perfect. No, not really. It's more about making sure that you understand where you are. Sometimes we can let things go for a while and not look. That's okay. Sometimes you need to let that, that blossom bloom before you say, well, you know, it's taken a long time to get to that point. Sometimes you got to plant the seed, you got to let it grow, you got to water it, and then it gets to a point of beauty. Same thing with vegetables when you can pick it in order to eat it, right? Where you call it. 
So here we are in a situation right now is in April. And uh, a lot has gone on, of course, with the banking situation, the global financial markets. A lot of fun and games have gone on. And now that we seem to be done, <laughs> I laugh because we're, we're done with the banking crisis. It seems to be relatively over with. And what do we do? Well, what we, what we did was simply patch it full of all sorts of money and uh, put our fingers in the holes of the dam. And now we can get back to what we do best, right? Pushing up markets now that rate hikes look to be cooling and bets are for only one more 25 basis point hike this year. And more importantly, rate cuts starting sometime probably July, August. That's what we're seeing with Fed funds futures. The idea that the banking situation that just passed has probably caused a significant reduction in overall activity due to lending that's going to go on and things that are happening with regulatory environments with the banks. And the fact is that we already saw a slowdown in much areas of the world and of the uh, economy in the U.S. The Case-Shiller number that came out this week was only up 3.5% on a year-over-year basis. That's down sequentially from where it was 5 6 7% year-over-year gains on housing. And that is starting to adjust to the reality of where we are with regard to rates. You have to realize that it doesn't matter if you think that, oh, you know what? Things are never going to change if you haven't been through what we're going through now. And that is a rate change environment where rates are much higher than they have been and where free money or high liquidity was really supercharging the economy. The Fed is purposefully pulling out of that. And that is having implications in areas where it's bulging, it's warping, it's breaking, and that's a problem. But yet, this is what it looks like at only the start of it. Now, that doesn't mean, don't get don't get upset yet, hold on. That doesn't mean to panic. That doesn't need, mean all of a sudden you need to change your plans and do something significantly different. What that means right now is that we are in a circumstance that there are a lot of potential problems with earnings, with the economy, with employment, with housing prices, with what goes on from there due to the fact that we are no longer in a zero interest rate bound by the Fed and we're no longer in a quantitative easing circumstance. We also realize that the regulatory environment is probably going to get tighter and bank lending standards are going to come up dramatically due to the fact that they've seen some real erosion in their deposits. But market participants, you know, looking back with the potential of a 25 basis point hike coming up and then cuts after that saying, hey, wait a second. You know, the market is, they use all these the terminology that we do know and existed for a long period of time only when it suits their fancy. But right now, here's what it is. That the market is a forward discounting mechanism. The market is showing us that the Fed is probably going to cut rates, and you don't want to fight the Fed. So you have two things right there. You have the market is a forward discounting mechanism, and you don't and you have don't fight the Fed. Two things. Let's put those together. What does that mean? Well, historically, when rates were coming down, that was really good for the more growth-oriented stocks with higher multiples that could really expand dramatically. Do we actually think that we're going back in any time soon? to a zero interest rate policy by the Fed? Do we have 
a financial meltdown of epic proportions that are taking banks out, the major ones, left and right? No. Do we have anything on the order of a pandemic where we're going to shut down not only local, but regional and country and global businesses potentially for an extended period of time? No. Those two items were the reason we got close to or entered into a zero interest rate environment. Can you see either of those happening again? Well, maybe a financial calamity, maybe a terrible war of some sort. But the reality is that right now, I don't think there is a political palette that will really deal with that very well. So uh, when we want to um, say that the, the growth stocks did well during a declining interest rate environment, that, that is some truth there. Uh, more so they did well because there was very cheap money out there and what they utilized was that to buy bonds and do buybacks and to expand because really there was no risk. I don't think we have that happening, but I think there is this knee-jerk reaction or Pavlovian response to what is happening with interest rates and that's impacting the markets right now in a very strange way. And especially for those of you who have not been involved with investing more than, let's say, 15 years. Let's not look at the last 15 years as a blueprint for the longer term. I think that would be a big mistake. Now, before we get to our guest, some people are curious. You want to know, hey, Andrew, what uh, happened with that chili cook-off? You know, you talked about it on the DH Unplugged show, which we do every Tuesday night live with myself and John C. Dvorak, and you can get that. And I encourage you, if you haven't listened to that Get DH Unplugged podcast. You'll find that really interesting and I think extremely entertaining. But we talked about this. One of the things we talked about was, you know, last year I felt like, ah, you had a really good presentation somehow. I don't know what happened there. Um, but this year we took uh, first place. I took first place in the judging. It was a blind judging taste off with a professional food critic. So I feel pretty good about that. And second place for People's Choice. Now, the secret ingredient this year, I told you about this, I think. Each year I put in a little bit of something to, to see how we can enhance the flavor a bit and really optimize that depth, the layering that you want to do, the multitude of things like just not using peppers, but using six or seven different types of peppers and not just using green and yellow, but smoking those and smoking your tomatoes and using white versus red onions as the base, and then adding red onions over the top. You know, again, layering of all these flavors. It's kind of like the idea of building a portfolio. Not so, uh, not such a differential, right? You want to have the ability to taste something in its in its totality, but also understand the components that make something up, just like portfolio management. Interesting how I slid that right in there, right? But it was the Panamanian cocoa that could have done it. This is a 100% cocoa block that I got when I was in the jungles of Bocos de Toro, Panama, a few weeks ago, I saw them actually grind it right in front of me after they fermented it, dried it, and uh, then uh, roasted it. And I took it and I reconstituted it. I used uh, 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 creamed honey or honey cream, depending on when you look at it. Uh, after I shaved off a bunch of it, put it into a pan at low heat, and then put in some butter. And boy, oh boy. Did that make a delicious, delicious chocolate? That was something right there. Not too sweet, but the, uh, the depth was amazing. So 
Anyway, uh, that was great. I was very pleased about that. Took home the trophy, the bragging rights, the the, the cash prizes, a whole whopping $100 prize. It cost me about $400 to put together the whole display and everything. And it was a lot of fun. We had a great time. Great time. It was about uh, 13 or 14 different competitors. So um, the job that I've decided I'd never want to do, although I'll probably be talked into it one day, is to be a chili cook-off judge for a large competition. Think about that for a second. You know, tasting 15 or 20 different chilies, even though you only take a spoonful or so, still, that's a lot of chili. And you got to taste a few that are not so good. Some that may be made from things like, you know, like we had a chicken, we had turkey, we had alligator. There was all sorts of different chilies out there. Beans, no beans, you know, and everybody's all, you know, oh, you got beans in your chili. Oh, it's not really chili. The whole Texas thing that goes on. Anyway, lots of fun, lots of good things out there. Listen, I want to spend some time, um, I want to talk about rates. I want to talk about the economy. I want to talk about the Fed and what's going on there. How about you? You know, talk about some of the things that are happening with the recharacterization and reclassification of bonds from hold um, to mark to market, which is for sale, the bonds on the books of the banks, to now this hold to maturity designation that they're putting on. And uh, I think a nice little trick right before your eyes, transferring their book of business from crap and concern to, ah, they look pretty good. Look at that. They're going to hold their bonds to maturity. And if they don't, they'll just move them back when there's a good time to do so. So let's get right to uh, what I hope to be a really great conversation because I've spoken to her before. Uh, our guest today is someone who I respect. And, uh, well, let's just, let's go. Let's just go. And our guest today is Danielle DiMartino Booth. She's the founder and CEO of Quill Intelligence. And she is a, a very hardworking individual looking to redefine how markets intelligence is conceived and delivered. And she's built this, this, this incredible organization, bringing together a core team of investing veterans to analyze the trends and provide critical analysis. Very sought after, I must tell you, very sought after in the media. Uh, I had to wait some time to get her to agree and figure out a time we could do this. She's a global thought leader on monetary policy, economics, finance, and the author of the wonderful and must-read book, Fed Up, an investor's take on why the Federal Reserve is bad for America. And you obviously, anybody listening to me, know that I subscribe to that thesis. <laughs> so, yes, indeed. Good for you. How are you doing? How are you feeling? How's things? Uh, things are good. I mean, you know, I'm, I am a high energy person, so I like it when things are busy. I mean, you know, global banking crises, you know, that, that might be a little bit too busy, but, uh, but no, things are going well. <laughs> Last time you were on was October, 2022. And things are bad at that point, not from a banking standpoint, just from a, ugh, you know, everybody was in a malaise. They were raising rates. It was going for on forever and nobody knew what was going on. And the change from a zero or ZERP interest rate, policy to anything other than that was just very depressing. And the, and the, and the, the, we talked about the change from zero to let's say 1% is not the same as 1% to 2% because the multiplier factor is much different. So we talked about the Fed experiment and how that we were, we were concerned, you and I both were concerned about the lack of plan at the time. So my question, fast forward, here we are today. What has changed? Well, what has changed is, uh, is that Powell has stayed the course. And I think that that's probably what has surprised investors more than anything else. 
uh, as 2022 uh, rolled on, the market continuously priced in a Fed pivot or a Fed pause. Call it what you will, but you know, since October, all the all Jay Powell has done really is spearheaded very steady increasing levels of tightening. Do you think that the markets just want to believe what's good for markets? That's how they digest information? Oh, I certainly do. And markets, market participants have been trained this way. The idea of, of the Fed put is ingrained. Uh, it's, it's all that any, any, anybody but the oldest investors are, are accustomed to. You have to. You have to talk to somebody who was investing throughout the entire decade of the 1980s, really, uh, and, and back, even back into the 70s. Uh, to, to find somebody who appreciates what is actually taking place. And more so people that actually went to school and learned about Economics 101 before, let's say, uh, the year 2000, which, which, by the way, was 23 years ago. So, oh, God. <laughs> so if you think about that for a second, all that was being taught over the years, even though there may have been some very elder uh, when I say elder, you know, people in their 50s, oh my God, 60s, uh, teachers and, and people in uh, professors teaching economics, it was still like, oh, well, here we are, the new world where the Fed bails everybody out. And um, yep. I, guess, I guess this Fed, so you've been through a few Feds, right? You've been through a variety of them and you've studied many of them. You're an insider, of course, we know that. So you have a unique vision and viewpoint on this. How do you grade this Fed? Um, you know, for me, at least this Fed so far, uh, let, let me put it differently. Uh, since Jay Powell was uh, reconfirmed, I'm just going to draw that line in the sand. Mm -hmm. I, I would give this Fed a, a grade of a of a B. Mm. And what were they before? Before during the confirmation? The during the transitory phase? <laughs> okay. Yeah, a D. D. <laughs> so, uh do you think that they caused the crisis, this banking crisis? Um, I think that I think that the Fed is certainly partially, maybe even in large part, to blame for the mechanics of what's happening uh, with the banking crisis. I also think that there has been some risk taking, some speculation that's also gotten uh, individual actors in trouble as as well. Because we these are these are all the result, in my opinion, of participation trophies. <laughs> Seriously, think yeah. about it. Right or wrong? Well, th there's there's something to be said for that. There is definitely something to be said for that. Um, there was an intractability, however, when it came to banks following the Fed into quantitative easing, in the sense that banks did buy the same securities that the Fed was buying when it was growing its balance sheet after the pandemic struck based on the Fed's then commitment to not even think about thinking about raising interest rates, which was violently, uh, that narrative was violently thrown out the window, leaving a lot of, of banks innocently, that's the right word, but leaving a lot of banks innocently um, offsides. So I want to talk to you about this. I'm skipping ahead. And I want to come back to the banks in a second on the Fed's role and all this. But but you brought up something really important. You brought up this, the phrase, a, a, a very, very critical phase, because if you say it, I know exactly what you're talking about. They're not thinking about thinking about thinking about raising rates at this point. Now, 
Why is that so important? I say to myself, because that phrase tells me something that the Fed is doing in a very concise manner that is meant to, I think, sway me and to provide that continual carrot to get me to where they want to lead me to. Would you, would you agree with that? I, I would agree with that. Yes. So going back, these word games, and this dates back before Bernanke's communication strategy. Remember that whole, we're going to have a new communication strategy? And I'm like, oh God, no. Right? <laughs> Which was nothing more than their idea of transparency, but yet it was more of a manipul manipulation in my opinion. Yes. I mean, the, the whole press conference after, I mean, don't get me wrong. It, it allows me to be a sportscaster once every six weeks or so um, with, with, with the press mm -hmm. conference after the FOMC. But, uh, but no, Fed speak in and of itself has become a weapon of mass destruction. Yeah. So let's talk about some of that, right? It seems to be they pick up on a word, they use it, and they try to screw it into our heads. So we have examples in the past. I, 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 I jotted down a, a few of them. Green shoots. You remember that one? Oh, yeah. That was, that was Bernanke, I think, right? Oh, yeah. Yep. And he brought it up one day. I don't think they sat around in a room thinking of that phrase, in my opinion, at least. I think it just, you know, it was something. And then all of a sudden it was picked up on like, oh, 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 we have green shoots. That means that the Fed is seeing something. Of course, the Fed sees stuff that we don't see. That's also the backdrop of all of this, isn't it? It is. It is indeed. And, um... And they should see things that we don't see because they are also, we're realizing, um, and I guess we're realizing in a very uh, abrupt manner that they're also a banking regulator. So they get to see things that we also don't get to see. Yeah. We'll get back to that important point. Uh, then they use, we have a, again, there's, there's different time periods and all that. Um, anchored, the word anchored, inflation or our, our, our interest rates or anchored. That was something big, right? Always using the word anchored. Uh, we can count that in the various uh, things. 2% over time. So, mm -hmm. we, you know, or 2% inflation over time. Then we get into transitory. Now, I have two of them that I'd like to talk about with you, the newest ones. Bugging the crap out of me. First one, disinflation. What the hell? Now, I've, I've, listen, you haven't heard me talk about this because we haven't talked in about five months. So, last, only been the last few months that I have been out of my mind about this disinflation that has been bought into by everybody in media, media that we were entering into a disinflationary period. And I said to myself, oh, that's good. Yeah, because, I'm like, wait, 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 wait. What the hell does that even mean? That's what I said to myself, right? I'm like, what does that exactly mean? And I looked up the definition. I'm like, you know, I think, I think there's some shenanigans going on here with the idea of utilizing this word to try to say that we're going to go through negative inflation or bringing down inflation, when in fact, when I looked it up, the word meant just a slowing of inflation. Yeah, that is that is actually correct. And um, I, I dare say that that Powell is is using the actual definition that you just that you just uh, provided. I, I think that that is exactly what is is is. Um, emboldening him to continue, if nothing else, maintaining a high level of interest rates. But I make the case that he's using the word disinflation as another weapon because markets seem to like that because I think most people think that is actually the reverse of inflation, not in fact inflation, just a little less of. What do you think about that? 
would be. But again, remember his goal. His goal is, you know, if if markets stay elevated, then his ultimate goal, in my view, of killing the Fed put is easier for him. If if the market is crashing, it's really difficult for him to maintain a tightening stance. If the markets are fairly orderly, well-behaved, then it's it's much easier for Powell to keep unwinding the balance sheet and potentially killing off the Fed put much, much easier. But that creates a, in my opinion, a, a, a uh, crevasse underneath a very unstable snowbank. Or better said, it, it is a sinkhole with uh, the potential to have a cave-in because you can't have increasing interest rates, in my opinion, and valuations that don't give a crap. I mean, we still have a S and P five hundred four thousand, uh, a seventeen and a half forward PE at interest rates that are you know four hundred fifty basis points higher than they were a year ago. Without a doubt, yes, like, yes. How does that yes. work? Uh, well, it doesn't work very well. But as far <laughs> as Powell is concerned, it's working swimmingly. Yeah, it's working out beautifully. Right. So the latest word, let me throw this one at you, okay? This is the latest one. And I, and I have a bigger issue, it seems, with the word disinflation than you do, because I polled a bunch of people, and you should do this in your spare time, because maybe you like to do this. Ask people that you know at a cocktail party to say, hey, I'm having fun. What does the word disinflation mean? I am telling you, they will all say that it's the, it's the reverse of inflation. I, actually, yep. prices are coming down. I, look, again... I, I think you might be missing where I'm coming from here, and that's what's key. Powell also knows that the job openings data that he references is garbage, but he keeps referencing it. Ah. He knows that the inflation, super core inflation metric that he keeps referencing, he knows that that's also garbage. It, what He's trying to do the impossible. He's trying to kill the Fed put. Mm. And it's in order to do that, he literally has to hide behind misconceptions, as you point out. He has to rely upon investor, investors saying, oh, gee, that the, the head of the Fed thinks that inflation is going to be, that, that we're going to actually have deflation. That's great. That means he's going to be lowering interest rates to the zero bound all over again. Powell's like, think that if you will, just give me leeway to continue tightening monetary mm. policy. Right. So now with the banking crisis, the last word that's been coming out lately is another one that is uh, one of those like, oh, okay. Uh, and it's the word resilient. Have you seen this a thousand times now? Well, now that that's a word that you can go back to any banking crisis in the history of mankind, back to Rome, back to ancient Rome, and you will find the word resilient, maybe translated into many languages, but there, there, there's... There is a there is a rule of law that says if you're a banking regulator, whether you're at Treasury, the FDIC, the Federal Reserve, the OCC, it doesn't matter. If you're a banking regulator of any kind, that is your that is your code word constantly because you cannot scream fire in a crowded theater. Yep. And, and resilient doesn't mean they're strong. It means that they'll come back. <laughs> That's well, what it, it, it's the word. The word is 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 attempting to convey um, that, that the foundation is solid. Right. Exactly. So we have this situation with the banking, um, and we have resilient and sound and, and everybody has been scripted and given the, the, the wink and the nod to utilize that word in every speech. Cause you see it popping up all over the place, just everywhere. Right. 
Uh, let's talk about the global condition with all of this right now. I know it's something you look at also. Rates are up pretty much supposedly continuing to go up. Most parts of the world, ex-China, ex-Japan. Um, talk about a soft landing. Another word that we hear about, soft landing versus hard landing, that I think people don't really understand what that means, the, you know, the jargon that goes on. Uh, which just soft landing just means we're going to get through this rate hiking with no recession. That is indeed what soft landing means. It means that we're not going to go into recession. I mean, you know, right. tell that to the consultants at McKinsey who are going to lose their job. Tell that to the consultants at Accenture. Uh, you know, tell that to the, the the employees of the 400 footlocker stores that are closing down or the 15 Walmarts that have closed so far in 2023. So um, it, it's it, it makes for good press. Soft landing is a nice thing to talk about. Um, I will say that that the chatter about soft landing has seriously faded in yes. the last few weeks. And now people, you know, whisper to themselves, crash landing. Well, it, it, we, we, we've, we've gotten the, if we're in a plane and that's what we're looking at, uh, the plane's been nicked by, let's just say right now, birds flying through the engines at this point, <laughs> something's, something's yeah. going on, right? Something is going on. Something is um, as opposed to, uh, you know, what, what we've been repeating for the last year, while, uh, you know, throughout Powell's reign of terror, as I call it, uh, you know, we haven't seen something break because we haven't seen systemic risk. Right. You know systemic risk when you see it, but we've definitely seen breakages. So I want to talk about the Fed. I want to um, talk about, I want to get back to for a moment um, and talk about what actually happened with the banks and your thoughts on oversight. But let me just uh, mention one thing. You know, a lot of us spend our time looking at all the exciting things out there that are available to invest, but we really don't pay a lot of attention to things that, well, are simple, like where we have our cash. And interactive brokers clients earn up to 4.33% on their uninvested, instantly available cash balances. In fact, you have to ask yourself, how much interest is your broker able to pay you? Because interactive brokers has a very prudent and conservative risk management program that uniquely positions them to pay you higher interest and with demonstrated security and financial strength. This is important. So I want you to think about this. I want you to compare the 4.33% rate that IBKR is able to pay you to other brokers who pay a lot less. You know, you look at, for example, you with Fidelity, you with E-Trade, GD Ameritrade, a lot of these pay a lot less than that on your available cash balances. And that's just one of the many reasons clients use interactive brokers to trade stocks and options, futures, currencies, uh, bonds, funds, and so much more. Now understand that rates are subject to change, plus interactive brokers is a member of SIPC. So do me a favor, do yourself a favor, visit ibkr.com slash interest rates to learn more and do some comparisons on what you could be earning on your uninvested, instantly available cash balances. Okay, so as I mentioned, I wanted to talk about the banking, we call it a crisis, it was a crisis? What is it? It's a, a little hiccup? What do you think? I don't know. I mean, we lost one of the 30, 30 largest financial institutions on the planet. That was a slow grinding disaster with Credit Suisse. And then we saw one, two, three financial institutions in the United States fall within a week. So that was pretty dramatic. Credit Suisse was a zombie dead 
to me bank for 10 years as it was. I, I don't dispute that at all. It doesn't change the fact that it's gone and they had to change Swiss law to make it go away. And we had to give sweetheart deals to two or three different banks here in the U.S. to pick up the pieces of Signature and Silicon Valley, right? We did indeed in order to prevent systemic risk from coming unleashed, in order to prevent a contagious bank run across the country. Who regulates the banks? Many entities in the United States, laundry list of entities. Who, is the Fed part of the oversight looking at stress items and issues pertaining to um, banking, uh, 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 well, not only resiliency, of course, but soundness and and financial condition? Of course, that is that is the Fed's the, the Fed is duty bound to be a, a regulator, along with the OCC, along with other regulatory entities that 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 are watchdogs for the banking system. But yes, uh, this is something that that the Fed did not see coming and should have seen coming and should have stress tested for, given it, it was the architect behind rapidly rising interest rates you know, at the fastest pace in forty years. So let me just restate this. One point, the Fed didn't see this coming. How in this guard's green earth, with the data that they have, with the knowledge of where they are, how did they not see this coming? Well, you know, the Fed's in a unique position because it can be insolvent and have no consequences due to the law change in 2011 that just says that any losses incurred by the Federal Reserve will eventually be um written off as a factor of time in the form of reduced future remittances to the Treasury Department. So I guess maybe one of the reasons the Fed didn't see it coming, despite the fact that they were sitting on trillions of dollars of losses on their mortgage-backed securities and Treasury holdings due to quantitative easing, was because that there were no consequences for the Fed. So that would be one reason. Is it an excuse? Hell no, not at all. They should have understood that banks following them directly into purchasing mortgages at two or two and a half percent and then raising rates such that mortgage rates were triple that level was going to be highly problematic as it is. Could you tell me a little bit about the differential? I talked about this last show, but where we were marked to market versus marked to maturity and how all of a sudden that became like a blow up point in a matter of, I don't know, hours well, yes. If if you have you you only have certain reserve requirements. You're only a, you're only required by law to have a certain actual amount of reserves on hand to uh, to satisfy deposits. To, to excuse me, to satisfy withdrawals. Um, if, however, that that cushion is exceeded, as was the case with Silicon Valley Bank, and you're sitting on massive losses. Uh, such that you're selling a $21.5 billion book of, of treasuries and mortgage-backed securities to Goldman Sachs at a $1.8 billion loss in order to raise cash when you are stressed, as Silicon Valley was, because $42 billion was withdrawn in one morning, uh, then you find yourself with no capital cushion to speak of. And insolvent in a matter of minutes. That goes back to the fact that you might have owned mortgages, because you took the Fed for its word that it was not going to raise interest rates, you might have owned mortgages at 2%. And once mortgages crossed 6%, you decided to put that mortgage-backed security into this little holding tank called hold to maturity so that you wouldn't have your capital encumbered. Mm -hmm. But as a result, when you 
absolutely need it to liquidate those those security holdings on your balance sheet, it produced a lot of bloodshed. And that's exactly what happened with Silicon Valley Bank. Goldman was not able to uh, fulfill the second half of their commitment, which was critically to help Silicon Valley Bank that afternoon raise capital of $2.2 billion that would have exceeded the loss that it had incurred selling those bonds to Goldman Sachs. So it was a simple matter of math. And then we have this other issue, what really took down, um, created more problems and was now not really being talked about that much with Credit Suisse with regard to their AT1, their additional tier one capital bonds, the cocoa bonds that most people don't really understand, but basically it's 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 a it's a convertible bond that was allowed to be used as a tier one capital buffer. And uh people thought it was safe. And they basically wiped out all of those on on CS. Is this an issue that could be more problematic because people are going to be questioning whether or not they want to put their money in those cocoa bonds? Well, I, I do I do think that cocoa bonds are much less attractive than they once were. <laughs> well. <laughs> uh, and I, I would suspect that uh, that that European countries realize that there's an out clause if push comes to shove. Um, and as you say, the the rule of law was upended. that that's always dramatic. Um, look, we are we're if you want to back out for just a minute and just go back up to forty thousand feet in in the air. Mm-hmm. Um, negative interest rate policy, zero interest rate policy, none of this was ever going to end well if any central bank attempted to normalize interest rates. That's exactly what happened, and that's why we're seeing the the appearance that central bankers can only step on landmines regardless of which direction they step in. And that is, that's where we are. Eventually, normalizing is impossible if the world depends on interest rates never being normalized. I also think that the lunches, the speeches, the pre-book deal discussions maybe should be cut short and some of these regulators should get back to the work what they're supposed to be doing. They become total pop, in their own minds, pop heroes. Uh, these guys marching out every week with the various thing that they're going to raise, they're going to lower, they're going to raise, they're going to up, holding it resilient, I think we should shut down this communication strategy. What do you think? Communication, communication strategy at the Federal Reserve is clearly broken. And, uh, and they do need to beef up supervision and regulation. There is something to be said for the fact that Silicon Valley Bank was getting a bunch of green check marks uh, by the San Francisco Fed that was directly regulating the financial institution because it was a green compliant bank. Ah. Well, how about we look inside of the actual risk management and loan book at the bank? What about what happened, you know, with with the FDIC having to cover a 23% haircut in order for first citizens to buy Silicon Valley that, Bank? Another, another sweetheart deal. That, that, that's a big haircut. And that leads you to the other discussion, which we could spend another hour talking about. And that is what happens after we finish with the discussion about liquidity issues, interest rate risk, that are facing the banks. And then we start to talk about the quality of their loan books. That's a problem. And you also just recently wrote an article pertaining to community banks and the potential of them having big problems, the, the, the reduction in overall community banks and 
you know, people talk about that as the lifeblood of the small businesses, the regionals and communities, right? And locals, that is. That, 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 that is true. So I have kept too small to not fail pinned uh, at demartinabooth.substack.com. So everybody can read a very short history of the world and understand what's gotten us to where we are. And a lot of that goes to uh, Dodd-Frank and some very misguided, poorly written legislation. I think one of those guys whose name was on the legislation was also on the board of a big bank that also just went under. I think it was Barney Frank. Yes, I'm I'm speaking tongue in cheek. Yes. Uh, Barney, just for our listeners, Barney Frank, I think was on the board of Silicon Valley Bank Corp, right? No, a signature. Signature. Okay, signature bank corp. Uh, how does that oh, work? As you said, guys got to make a living. That he did say that, didn't he? Yeah, we did. That was weird. But Bless him. Uh, seriously, he's a weird guy anyway. But that's another story. All right, we're going to finish up with a couple other things. Um, where do you see all this? And I talked about the coca bonds. Talk about the, the financials. We talk about the fact that there's been a huge amount of monies drawn out of the smaller banks. Even though the FDIC and these everybody's talking about like you know blanket coverage, which is insane, by the way, but the movement of money that we have seen into, for example, uh, small bank, big bank, right? Small bank or bank over to two fifty, if you set it up, however you're setting it up with your FDIC, into things like our accounts for our clients, into treasuries, right? This is a big issue when you have such a differential. I blame the banks a little bit for holding out on paying paying decent rates when they could have uh, just to be greedy. Let's be honest. They were, a lot of them were doing that. They were just paying small amounts on their, on their uh, cash accounts and then realized, Oh my God, money's being pulled away from us. So, you know, raise it up a little bit, but still wasn't competitive until they realized, Oh my gosh, the money markets are paying a percent higher. People are going to start to flee. Where do you see where this is going to go for things like, you know, corporate bonds, credit-based concerns, um, the economy in general? Um, I, I can't see a, a very elegant pathway out. That's why we're seeing uh, junk bonds, junk bond spreads kick out to recessionary levels. That's why we're seeing bankruptcies picked up um, and, and layoffs increase because we are going to get finally to the, to the credit cycle portion of the post-pandemic fiscal relief uh, that is finally, finally, finally no longer propelling this economy forward uh, with taxpayer dollars. And it was an inevitability. It's just the fact that we were, the, the, the means by which we were able to push pause for a few years just means that there's that much more debt now. And that's a problem. Yeah, it's a problem. And, you know, it's interesting because I think there's going to be this knee-jerk reaction that happens. We're seeing it already. That, oh, interest rates are down. Let's buy technology and ramp up the markets. And when you have the cap-weighted indices like the S&P 500 or the um, the NASDAQ, interest rates down, that doesn't necessarily mean times are going to be good for these companies. Remember something. I think this is a key issue. During the COVID devastation, companies lost a lot of money. It was really only due to the fact of low interest rates, but more so due to the fiscal stimulus that came in that propped everything up and made nobody care about paying for employees and all that. Just because interest rates go down is not your your, your Pavlovian signal to buy technology or other biotech or other related growth stocks. Just a, an aside there. 
All right, what do you think is the greatest risk? I'll leave you on this. What is the greatest risk? First of all, where can people get in touch with you? So come to dmartinabooth.substack.com. I'm new to the platform. And then you can you can just enjoy the wonderful world of the research that, that I publish. Uh, we actually publish 13 times a week. Wow. Uh, so come to dmartinabooth.substack.com. Love to have you. Uh, follow me on Twitter at dmartinobooth. And to answer your last question, I, I think that that when the time comes and the debt ceiling is finally resolved and Treasury Secretary Yellen is compelled to go back into the Treasury market and sell a bunch of Treasury bills to refill the nation's checking account, again, once the debt ceiling is finally resolved, whether that be August, September, or October, who knows at this point, um, there is going, if you think that you heard a great sucking sound of reserves coming out of the system with this banking crisis, just you wait until you have seven, $800 billion worth of treasuries sold that take reserves down and in turn take bank deposits down. So put that on your radar, not mm. something that can, be, that, that can be dismissed out of hand because it makes your eyeballs roll back into your head. Mm. You've got a flavor for what's to come with this little banking crisis that we've just been through that I'm not convinced we're actually fully through. Danielle's shoes that are dropping. Seems shoes like are dropping. <laughs> well, as always, I appreciate you and I thank you for coming on and sharing your wisdom and and and, and your very straight answers and 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 you know you don't you know what's nice, Danielle. You don't uh, I'll, I'll if I may just for a second uh, give you a little bit of kudos here. You, you know what's really nice talking to you. You, you don't you don't hedge. You know, you tell, you tell it as it is. It's, it's very refreshing. It's really nice. It's, you know, you're not talking a specific book. Uh, so thank you for that. I, I really appreciate that and the service you do for everybody. And I, I appreciate your pointing that out. That is, a, I think they call that integrity in the world of investing, but yes. What? What? <laughs> integrity? Yes, it is. That's what it is, which is very hard to find in our world, isn't it? Indeed. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. You be well. Thank you so much for joining me. I'll talk to you soon. Thank you. Take care. All right, bye. I always learn so much from Ms. Booth, Danielle DiMartino Booth. She's a wealth of knowledge, information, and just a really, I think, special spot out there where we can find the information that is useful and I think, uh, you know, really something that is different than you see with the regular mainstream media that is always trying to pump up some angle or sell their book in some way or another. And while she has a book to sell, I'm not talking about that kind of book. I'm talking about a book of business, right? Where they're managing money and they're like, hey, things are good. My stock, uh, even though it's down, we're buying more. You know how that goes. Well, with that, we're going to end the show this week, trying to keep it tight these days. I want to thank you so much for joining me, welcoming uh, all of you to April 2023. And I'm going to see you again around the corner next week. We have some great things lined up for now and the rest of the year. See you soon. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. Nothing discussed in this podcast should be considered a recommendation to buy or sell any security. Past performance is no indication of future results. In addition, the information presented is not intended to be used as a sole basis of any investment decisions, nor should be construed as advice designed to meet the individual needs of any particular investor. Nothing herein constitutes legal, accounting, or tax advice, or individually tailored investment advice. Remember, investing involves substantial risk. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results and a loss of original capital may occur. No one receiving or accessing this information 
should make any investment decision without first consulting his or her own personal financial advisor and conducting his or her own research and due diligence, including carefully reviewing any applicable prospectuses, press releases, reports, and other public filings of the issuer of any securities being considered. Please consider this for educational purposes only. As always, use your best judgment when investing. Horowitz & Company, Inc. is registered as an investment advisor with the state of Florida and conducts business in other states where it is properly registered or is excluded from registration requirements. Registration does not imply any level of skill or training. Advertisements are not related to the host or affiliates and are not considered recommendations by the host of the show or any affiliates of Horowitz & Company.